Well, my name is Blake. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace Bible Church, and I have the privilege of coming and speaking to you today on a little bit of a different subject. We're not going to be in Psalms this morning. We're going to be talking about social media and how to use it as followers of Christ. Before I begin, though, I have a couple announcements that I need to make. Um, First is that summer Bible studies start this week. So if you're interested in doing a summer Bible study with us during the summers, we all meet together. So we'll be meeting at Southwood this Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. I'm going to actually be the one leading the June series for three Wednesdays in a row starting this Wednesday. I'm going to walk you through the whole Bible. So we're calling it from cover to cover. I'm going to walk you through the big storyline, the big idea of the Bible, so that you understand how all the pieces fit together and what God's big plan in human history is. So love to see you at 7 p.m. at Southwood. You don't have to register. You can just come. Second announcement, because we're talking about social media today, there's no way you can talk about that and not talk about pornography. And so if your child is in here and you're not ready to have that conversation with them yet, you might want to slip out. Now, at the same time, we're finding out that kids are starting to see that and interact with that around the age of six. And so if you are going to slip out with your kid and they're six or older, you need to have that conversation as soon as possible. So as we think about social media, I can't come close to saying everything that needs to be said about this topic in one sermon. It's a massive topic. All I can do today is get the conversation started. So that's my goal. I want to get the conversation started for you so that you can begin to think proactively about how you follow Jesus online and how you train and help your kids to follow Jesus online. That's our goal today, just get the conversation started. Now, our challenge in covering social media in a sermon like this is that there aren't any verses on it. Jesus never gave the sermon on Instagram. He never walked us through how to use social media. So, The best we can do is each try to discover general principles from Scripture that will guide us, but we can't be dogmatic since we don't have verses on it, passages on it. So I'm going to share with you my conclusions this morning, and you may disagree with me on some of the particulars, and that's totally okay. All I would ask is that you would listen to the conclusions that I've drawn, and then you would decide for yourself and for your family, what are you going to apply How are you going to use this thing called the internet in your life and in the life of your family? Let me start by sharing my story with you. So I entered the digital age back in 1988 when we got one of these. This is a Macintosh SE, and I was absolutely in love with it. We got it for Christmas. It came with a 20 megabyte hard drive and one megabyte of RAM, and it's important that you're hearing me say mega and not gigabyte there. It costs us $2,500 for that little thing. I compare that now to my iPhone. It's, I have a three-year-old one. It's iPhone 6. It shipped with 1,000 times the RAM, 800 times the storage, 350 times the processing power, an infinitely better screen, and it fits in my pocket. Computers have come an incredibly long ways in the last 30 years, and yet that's nothing compared to how much the internet has changed since its inception right about 30 years ago. I'm curious, how many of you, just raise your hands, if you can remember life before the internet? 
I've got a good number, not all of you, but a good number. I do. I, I was alive long enough to remember life before the internet. I remember that when you wanted to have a private phone conversation, well, there's only one phone in the house. It was in the kitchen, and you had to take it, and it wasn't, it wasn't wireless. It had one of those long cords, and so you had to try to like, pull it long enough to get into the pantry and close the door and then talk to somebody, and it's dark because you're inside the pantry. That was the only way to do it because we only had that one phone, and, and I remember that when you wanted to watch TV at night, all you had was the three network stations and PBS and Fox, and you watched whatever they wanted you to watch when they told you to watch it because you had no other choices. I remember you'd walk into the bathroom and all there would be was Reader's Digest because we had nothing else to look at when we were doing our business. Life was really simple back then. But then everything changed when I moved to A&M. Back in 1994, I moved into Dunn Hall when it had just been wired for Ethernet. And so all of a sudden we had high-speed, free, unlimited internet access into our rooms and rapidly our, our social life began to change. Now, when we needed to communicate with someone, we were more likely to type out an email than to, to pick up the phone. And when we needed to do research, we didn't walk over to Evan's library. We just did it on our computers. And when we wanted to meet new people, we did it online in video games or chat rooms. The internet went from a novelty to an actual part of your life And that was before social media or smartphones. Now the internet is the air you breathe. You you are on it all the time. We don't say you're surfing the internet. Now you live on the internet. It's a ubiquitous part of your life and mine. I I think it is fascinating if we just take a moment for those of us who are 40 and older and reflect on how much our lives have changed because of the internet. How you pay your bills and manage your finances radically changed. How you do your job, radically changed. How you get an education, radically changed. How you connect with friends and family, radically changed. In fact, I would argue that the internet has changed humanity faster and more profoundly than any other technological innovation ever. And that massive, fast-paced change has brought some good things to us. There's a number of good results of the internet. We now have access to practically all human knowledge ever created. You can just get it at your fingertips. We now have freedom for persecuted groups to get their message out to the whole world. We now have whole new industries, a phenomenal growth economically through the internet. You now have access to more products than ever for cheaper prices than ever. And we're now able to connect with friends and family all around the world. So a lot of good things that the internet has brought, but there's also a lot of sad things, painful things, and evil things that we as as a human race have received because of the internet. Almost as soon as it was invented, it became a tool for terrorists, criminals, racists, pedophiles. It's a powerful tool used to promote their agenda. We look at, at, at social media, particularly this last year, and we see that it's a petri dish for spreading fake news for spreading gossip and and hatred and don't even get me started about pornography if you look at the statistics a a lady named nancy joe sales wrote a book recently american girls social media and the secret lives of teenagers and she she studied the statistics deeply and here's what she found the adoption of the internet in american life is inextricably tied to porn In 2015, porn sites were among the most popular in cyberspace, accounting for up to 35% of internet traffic. Porn is more available now than it has ever been, and for the first time, it is readily available to everyone, including kids. Studies have reported that American children start seeing online porn as young as age six. 
And now, thanks to social media, our kids are not only consuming porn, they are producing porn by taking and sharing nudes. There are, she says, slut pages at every high school in America where non-consensual nude pictures of girls at the school are shared, followed by anonymous horrible comments. And what you need to realize is that every single large social media platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all of them are used to distribute pornography. Every single one of them. Now, beyond the blatantly evil stuff like pornography, the internet is having more subtle effects on us as individuals and as us as, as a community. Three things in particular that the internet is doing to us, whether we realize it or not, it is actually changing the structure of your brain. Quite literally, our neural pathways are being rewired by our constant use of the internet and its link system that is changing the way that your brain functions. Now, there's a good side of that. Humanity as a species, we now have a greater ability to process a wide ocean of interconnected data, but that comes at a cost. The cost is human beings are losing their ability to think deeply about any one thing. I see that in my own life. It's harder for me now to focus deeply with concentration on one thing for a long period of time. Instead, I jump from one thing to the next, and part of that is my use of the internet. I think that's the reason that we see a complete collapse of mature political discourse in this country. I don't know if you've ever read the history. Back in Abraham Lincoln's day, a politician and another politician would get together to debate in front of a crowd. They would each get to speak for hours while the crowd listened attentively. It was enough time for the politician to really explain his position and the nuances around it and how he would implement that policy. And they got to have a mature debate and question one another. People could listen. Nowadays, it's too long if it's over 140 characters because it won't fit on Twitter. Well, you can't have mature discussion 140 characters at a time. We as a race are losing our ability to think deeply and that's costing us in many ways. Second thing that the internet is doing to us, it's fueling comparison and starving contentment. Author Michael Harris says, online life is a toxic enabler of the desire to compare. Now, comparison is not new to the internet. Humans have always compared themselves to other humans as long as there have been humans. We all do. I'm a dad, so I compare myself to other dads, how I'm measuring up. But now, thanks to the internet, I have a constant feed telling me how much I'm failing. Every time I go on social media, there's all these great dads. And the problem with social media is what kind of things do we share on social media? Only the best stuff. So two months ago, I shared this amazingly cute video of my son reading the Bible, and I got all these likes and all these comments. What I did not share was video of the fight he and I had five minutes later over whether he was going to brush his teeth that night. No, we don't share the, the bad stuff. We only share the really good stuff, the beautiful stuff. And so the result is every time you go on social media, it's not just that it drives comparison, it's that you lose every time. You can never measure up to someone else's Facebook life because you live a real life. And so social media is driving discontent and sadness in our life. Since I wrote this sermon, there's actually been a major groundbreaking study that's come out that has definitively proven people who use Facebook are sadder than people who don't. No way around it. Third thing that the internet's doing to us, it is destroying civility and kindness in our culture. 
there are two features that were designed into the internet from its very inception that feed cruelty. The first is anonymity. And I, I, I hate this one. On the internet, you are allowed to say something or post something without it being tied publicly to you. That frees people to say or do things online they would never do if somebody knew it was actually them. Second design feature, distance. You don't have to see the face of the person you just humiliated online. You don't get to see their tears. You don't get to see the look of pain in their eyes. And so because of anonymity and distance, the internet has bred a culture of cruelty. We see that particularly with our kids. I hope you know this. There are young kids, like junior high age kids, bullying each other online so mercilessly mercilessly that kids are committing suicide. We see it with adults too, just a, a complete lack of respect and kindness online. It's as if going online excuses you to say everything horrible you've always kept inside. So we look at the internet and we see incredible suffering and pain that is, has unleashed upon humanity. We created the internet without ever asking if we should. We could, so we did it. And now that it's been made, we can't put that genie back in the bottle. Internet's never going away. And so what should we as followers of Christ do? Well, some Christians will choose what I call the Ron Swanson option. Um, There are these things called cookies, where like if you go to a site and buy something, it'll remember you and then create ads for other stuff you might want to buy. So it learns information about me? Seems like an invasion of privacy. Dude, if you think that's bad, go to Google Earth and type in your address. So the Ron Swanson option is get offline, cut the internet off, destroy the devices, go live in the digital desert. Now, that's a a beautiful option to Ron. The problem is most of us can't live that life, can we? How many of you can actually do your job and never go online? No one. Maybe maybe one. Wow, you are a lucky man. We don't have a lot of students here today, but I was asking earlier, how many students can can do Texas A&M without going online? The answer was absolutely none. You must go online to get your degree. So we look at our lives and we realize we're going to have to live online. How do we do that well as followers of Christ? And so that's what I want to walk you through this morning. And I want to begin by giving you two fundamental principles, two big ideas to guide your use of the internet and social media. And these two fundamental principles, they come from the same verse in the book of Matthew. It's chapter 10, verse 16. It's the most important verse in the Bible on the internet. Behold, Jesus says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus is sending his disciples out into the world, but he wants them to understand this world they are entering is a world full of wolves. It is a dangerous place, and that's a perfect way to describe the internet. It is a place full of wolves. It will destroy you. And so the first principle is we need to be vigilant to remain innocent. This world is coming after us and our kids. I I lament to think about how many adults and children have lost their innocence because of the internet. My prayer is that that won't happen to you or to your kids, but you can't uh, can't watch over that in a haphazard way. You must be proactive. You must be diligent to watch over yourself and your kids to keep you innocent. Innocent as doves. That takes a lot of work to remain innocent as doves on the internet. 
So that does beg the question, well, then why not just go off the internet entirely? Well, think about what Jesus was doing here. He was sending his disciples into a world full of wolves. Why? Because that's why they were on earth. To go and live among the wolves to reach them for Jesus Christ. And that's why you're here. That's why your kids are here. To reach this world of wolves for Jesus Christ. To share the good news that there's a God in heaven who loves them so much that he sent his son to die for their sins and rise from the dead so they could have eternal life as a free gift. The online world needs to hear that message. And so we as followers of Christ, we need to go online to share Jesus with them. Our world is online, so we must be online too. But when you go online, Jesus says, be, be shrewd, be wise, be thoughtful about how you interact online so that it doesn't corrupt you and instead you are a light and an influence for good. And so that leads to the second principle, wisely use the internet for good. And, and as bad as the internet can be in, in so many ways, it can also be a tool for great good, great economic good, great medical good, but, but even religiously, it can be a great place for spiritual conversations. Facebook can actually be an incredible evangelistic tool because you can connect with people who don't live anywhere near you, who you'd never otherwise be in the room with, and you can share things about Jesus with them. The internet's a place where you can connect with people who share a common hobby with you, and you can go to lunch with them or deepen that relationship through social media. The internet is how organizations like Breakaway and Crew get the gospel out to millions of people. It's how seminaries now are training pastors and persecuted countries. It's how charities raise money to help people in need. So the internet can be a tool of great good, but you got to wisely, diligently protect your innocence when you go online. So those are their two guiding principles. Be vigilant to remain innocent. Wisely use the internet for good. Those are the big ideas. Now let's get into the practical stuff, the really specific principles. I'm going to divide these into two groups. So first, I'm going to talk about how you, as a follower of Christ, use the internet and social media well. And then I'm going to talk about how you as a parent train your kids to do the same. So let's start out with principles to guide us as individual followers of Christ. How should we use social media and the internet? I'm going to give you five principles here. The first one is limit the amount. Limit the amount. What we need to understand about the internet and social media is all social media is addictive by design, not by accident. Why do companies like Facebook and Twitter exist? To make money. They're not charities. They're not in this to help you with your relationships. They're businesses trying to make money. How do they make more money? By getting more of your time. So they have massive research departments dedicated to figuring out how to get you to stay on their app longer. Your addiction is part of their business model. So you have to know that and be aware of that ahead of time. Social media will addict you if you let it. So let's be clear, morally speaking, social media is not sin, but it becomes sin when you let it become an addiction. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 6. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. 
Okay, so social media, going onto Facebook, going onto Twitter or Instagram, that's not a sin, but it becomes evil for you if you allow it to control you. And you have to recognize that the people who made those apps designed them to master you. So you must fight back. The first thing is just to have some awareness. How do you know if you are addicted to social media? Well, if your relationships online are more real than your actual face-to-face relationships, that's a bad sign. If social media relationships begin to interrupt real relationships, that's a bad sign. Like you're talking to a friend or a parent, like right here, they're standing in front of you, you're talking, and rather than looking them in the eye, you look at your phone and scroll through it, that's a bad sign. If you actually start shaking because you haven't checked your phone in 10 minutes, that's addiction for sure. And so recognize those signs and then begin to fight back against the tendency of these social media apps to addict you. And I'm, I'm going to give you some, some practical ideas. Don't do all of these. Maybe just choose one of these ideas to try in your life or your family this week. Think about practicing Sabbath from electronics. So Sabbath is, is one day a week off from your normal routine to focus time on God and on family. So maybe you as a family need to have a Sabbath day. It could be Sunday, it could be a different day, but just a day where electronics are not allowed. Uh, second idea, ban devices from meals. I heard a great idea from someone a couple months ago. When you go to lunch with friends, the first thing you do when you sit down is take out your smartphone and put it face down on the center of the table. Everyone does that. And the first person that grabs their smartphone before the check arrives pays the whole check. That will help you to pay attention. If you're at home where there's no check, we'll do the same thing. First one to grab their phone does all the dishes. So come up with a way to ban devices from the table so that you can have actual relationship. Third, schedule off hours. So instead of scheduling on hours, our devices are always with us now, schedule actual time in the day or the week where the devices are going to be off. Maybe it's 9 or 10 p.m. at night to 6 a.m. in the morning or some amount of time where devices are not allowed. Fourth, set up restricted spaces. So these are places in your life where the devices are not welcome. So an example would be the bedroom. In the bedroom, we're going to ban devices. Um, it could be at, at the dining room. It, it could be in the car. As, as you're dri- well, if you're the one driving, then please don't pick up your device. But let's say you're just riding along. You're a passenger. Well, ban use of devices from vehicles so that the driver and passenger actually have to talk to one another. Okay, so set up these restricted spaces. Do whatever you have to do to put boundaries on your use of social media because, again, it is designed to addict you, and it will if you don't control it. Okay, so limit the amount of it you let into your life. Second, assume everyone can see everything. It completely stuns me that there are still people who believe in this notion of online privacy. How many times does a celebrity have to have her nude pictures stolen and posted online? How many times does a big box retailer like Target have to get hacked? How many democratic emails do we have to have leaked in the press before we are willing to recognize there is no such thing as online privacy? The CIA got hacked, right? And so if they got hacked, your pictures and posts aren't safe. Everything can be seen, including stuff you post to an anonymous app like Snapchat. That is a complete lie. The idea of a disappearing post or message or picture is a lie. All of it can be captured. If you post it online, it can be seen. And so what we need to commit to is that we will never 
share or post or send or text anything electronically that we're not okay with everyone seeing. That includes your spouse or your future spouse, your boss or your future boss. That includes your parents, your kids. We need to be aware that anything we put online can be seen and and recognize it can be seen by everyone everywhere forever. Once it's on the internet, it's on the internet forever. Ten years from now, you're going to still be haunted by that picture you posted after you drunk too much. You got to recognize once you post it electronically, it can be seen by everyone everywhere forever. So never post anything online. You're not okay with everyone seeing. Third principle for us. Consider the content. Before you actually post something online, I I want you to, to take a moment and think about Ephesians 4. Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it will give grace to those who hear. That verse applies to our online speech as much as our actual literal face-to-face speech. So everything we post online must be what? It must be gracious. It must be good. It must edify. It must be true. Now, it can be funny, and, and it can be convicting to people, but it can never humiliate. It can never shame. It can never be mean. That's never okay online. And again, the key here is to recognize it's not okay whether you are putting it with your name or anonymously because no one's anonymous with God. He sees everything. Okay, so the principle that I practice in my life, this is how I apply it. My rule is if I won't say this face-to-face, I won't say it online, period. Unless I would actually walk into the room with the people who will see this and say it to them face-to-face, I will never post it online. Again, it doesn't matter whether that's um, by your name or anonymously. We might not know who at Hip Hop Augustine is, but God does. And so this guy has to make sure that his words follow the rule of grace and goodness and truth. Fourth principle for us. Consider your motives I want you to to take a moment when you post something online or get ready to post it and ask yourself why. Why are you expending these electrons to post this picture or this comment? What is behind it? Now, it could be good. It might be because you want to make someone laugh, you want to connect with someone, you want to participate in a good conversation, you want to encourage someone, or it might be because you're stoking your ego and you want more people to like you and you want to validate your worth. I want you to think about your motives, and the reason is is because motives matter to God as much as our actions do. He cares. And so if your motive is from a wrong place, then don't post it. That won't honor Jesus. My fifth principle for you, consider the consequences. Absolutely everything that you post online is going to affect someone, maybe many someones. And so as a result, we are each morally responsible to think ahead of time about how our post or picture or video or comment is going to affect the people who see it. Is it going to be a blessing to them? Is it going to be good for them? Or is it going to tear them down, hurt them, harm them in some way? Now, there's no way that you can think through every possible consequence. I'm I'm not asking you to to so overanalyze something that you never post online. And I'm not saying that sometimes you're going to post online and it's going to make somebody angry because you convicted them. That's okay too. What I'm saying is you need to think carefully ahead of time about what you're posting and ask yourself, is this good for people or not? Because that's what love is. Love is you do that which is good for the other person. 
So you have to think about the consequences of what you're posting. You've got to think about it proactively. So let me give you a few examples to consider. This first one you might agree with or you might not. This one you can, you can draw your own conclusion, but it's one that I think is powerful in my own life. Let's say that you and a group of friends go to a dinner or a movie or um, a concert, but it's just a small group of your friends. It's not all of your friends. And you're having a really wonderful time, and so you take a selfie and then you post it online. When you posted it online, how do all your friends feel who weren't invited? Well, probably insecure. Probably, not necessarily, but probably a little bit lonely. Probably a little bit unloved. And so why do you need to post it? If a party happens and no one posts it on Facebook, did it really happen? Yes, it did. You, you don't have to post it to validate the existence of that party. And so my encouragement to you, again, you might disagree with me. That's totally fine. But think twice about posting that picture of the really fun thing that you and a few people got to do so that lots of people see it who didn't get to do it. Okay, so let's think out, let's look out for each other, guarding each other from loneliness, okay? Second example for you, pictures and jokes about our kids. A 2010 study found that 92% of American children have an online presence before the age of two. Parents post nearly a thousand images of their children online before their fifth birthday. Parents wrap their children's online identities into their own online selves, and so many children growing up today experience the world as a never-ending series of photo shoots for public conception, consumption. We're raising our kids to be performers, is what the study concluded. I want to challenge you. I know you're going to post pictures of your kids. I do the same. I want to challenge us to think carefully before we post anything about our kids. And the reason is because even if your child is two now and and won't know about it, well, in 10 years they will. Remember what we said earlier, once you post it online, how long is it there? Forever. Okay, so think to yourself, all right, well, here's a funny joke about my five-year-old. Wait a minute, how's your five-year-old going to feel about this joke when he or she sees it at 15? Because it will. You're going to feel encouraged, going to laugh too, or going to feel embarrassed by, by his or her parent. We need to think so carefully about what we're posting about our children because it affects them now and forever. It's never okay to build our social media presence on the back of our children. We need to look out for them. We need to keep them innocent and protected with what we share online. A third example for you. Again, you may or may not agree with this one. Before posting or linking to something political or strongly opinionated, Think carefully about how that's going to affect your witness for Jesus. Do you have the right to share your political opinions online? Yes, you absolutely have the right to do that. Is it the wise thing for you to do as a follower of Christ? Maybe, maybe not. You need to take time and think. How is this post linking to this article, linking to this speaker who's controversial, how is it going to affect my ability to share Jesus, particularly with the large number of people who disagree with my political position? When they see this, is that going to cut it off, any opportunity I have to share the gospel? Think carefully about protecting your witness by what you post or share online. Okay, so arrive at your own conclusions, your own conviction of what that means for you. But recognize, whatever you post online, it's going to affect what you're able to say about Jesus to people who disagree with you. Okay, so just a few examples. I, I think really our takeaway from this, if you look at this list, that's five things. All of them take time. 
And so that's probably the most important thing I would say to you. I think we make so many mistakes on social media because we fly through it. We post quickly. We comment quickly. We like quickly without stopping and thinking and processing, is this good? And so my encouragement for you is to be quick to listen and slow to post. You can do this. This is my five-minute rule, my little personal five-minute rule. If I'm going to to put something online that I'm like, I'm not sure, that could be controversial, that could be not, that could be helpful, that could be not. Okay, great thing is you can cue it up. So I might write it out. I might get the picture ready to share, the video ready to share, and then pause for five minutes. It's not going anywhere. It's just going to stay there ready. But before you hit enter... Give five minutes for your brain to think this through, the motives, the consequences, the content, and for God to speak to you and convict you if this is not okay. Slow down before you post so that you can honor Jesus as a follower of Christ online. Now let's talk about our kids. How do we as parents help our kids to navigate this brave new world of social media and the internet? That question reminds me of what Luke and I were up to yesterday. Luke is my seven-year-old son. Um, he and I were cleaning out the garage and making some progress, but at seven, he's quick to get into other things, and his favorite thing to do when we're cleaning the garage is he'll hop in my little car, my Miata. And yesterday was a remarkable day because it was the first time that he could reach all three pedals. He could actually get to him, and I just put a pillow behind his back, and, and he could reach everything, which was really cool until he said or asked the, the natural thing that any seven-year-old who can reach pedals is going to ask, Daddy, can I drive your car? Well, no, son, you're seven. You can't drive my car. Come on, we've got to get back to work. But he, he just kept asking. He has a, a knack for doing that. Daddy, can I drive your car? Daddy, can I drive your car? Please, please. And he was begging, he was whining, please, can I drive your car? And I, I really had to get the garage clean. And so finally, I, I just went ahead and I backed out the car and, and I got him positioned in it and got it started and got him with that pillow behind his back strapped in and sent him down the road and said, hey, buddy, have fun. And I finally got back and finished the garage. How many of you figured out I'm lying? right? Okay, because if I wasn't, you need to call the police. That is illegal and incredibly dangerous. My son's going to die if I do that. That's a ridiculous scenario. And yet, are we not doing exactly the same thing when we hand a young child an internet-connected, unrestricted device? A smartphone in the hands of a child is just as dangerous as a running car or a loaded gun. They are one click away from violence, pornography, abuse. We need to recognize the power and the danger in these devices, an iPad, an iPhone, a computer with no one watching. It's as dangerous as a loaded gun. It is remarkable to me that we will make children wait until they are 16 and have taken driver's ed and have passed the driver's test before we will give them a license to drive. And yet we will hand a much younger child an internet-connected, unfiltered device and say, have fun. That's negligent. That's dangerous. And so I'm not arguing that your child needs to be 16 before you give them a smartphone. What I'm arguing is that you need to recognize as a parent the danger inherent in these devices. And so before you hand your child an unrestricted internet-connected device, I want you to do three things. You need to train them, you need to set boundaries, and you need to provide oversight. Let me walk you through those three things you need to do. So the first, we need to train our children Now, training comes first because it's the only one that will really last. The boundaries that you set and the oversight that you provide will eventually fail. 
Your children are going to know the internet better than you do. If they're a tween or a teen, they probably already do. So they're always going to be able to get around you as they get older. So training is the most important thing. So that when they are on their own, they will know how to walk as a follower of Christ. So how do you train your kids? Well, I think of it as talks. A number of talks that we as parents must have with our children before they get the device. And the first one is we got to talk through all the principles we just went through for ourselves individually. You need to walk your child through those five things about limiting the amount. Man, your kid needs to know this is like heroin in digital form. You must protect yourself. They need to understand everyone can see everything. They need to think about the content and the motives and the consequences. So you train them through what I just trained you in. It's the first talk. Second, you need to discuss internet safety. And let me encourage you, don't beat around the bushes. Use the real words. Talk about it openly. Your child needs to understand there are people that will try to get to them through this device that want to kill them. They need to understand that reality, and they need to know what to do when they're contacted by a stranger. Who do they talk to? Who do they tell? What do they do? Third, you've got to have the pornography talk. Okay, you need to prepare your child, and here's the thing that we just need to focus on. No longer is the question if, now it's when. Your child will see pornography online, younger than you could ever imagine. And just so we're clear, it won't be a little, it will be a lot of horrible, violent pornography because the internet is flooded with it. They will see it all the time. And so what you need to do is prepare your child that he or she will know what to do when they see it, not if. Who do they tell? What do you do with the device? What do you want to do? Be open again. Use the real words because that's what they're going to be used online. Have those talks earlier than you ever expected so that your child is ready. Again, kids in America are starting to see pornography around the age of six. Fourth, you need to discuss online bullying. So your, your child needs to understand what it means to bully someone online. Your child needs to know what to do if they are bullied online or if a friend is bullied online. Who do they tell? Maybe a teacher, maybe the principal, maybe come tell you. They need to have a plan in place because bullying can turn incredibly dangerous really quickly. Okay, so you need to have these four talks with your kids before you give them an internet-connected device. You need to train them up so that they can use it well. Finally, I'll leave you with a piece of advice that the Pales gave me. I thought this was excellent. Um, they're training their twins to use Instagram. And here's how they do it. It's, it's brilliant. Um, Andrea set up an Instagram account for each of her kids, but she's the only one who can use it or see it. They can only actually see it if they're with her like on her lap looking at it, okay? They can't access it, post anything, do anything without her physically there. After they have passed this test, she will share the login information with her kids, but she will keep a copy and be on it with them all the time. They will share the account. Only when they have grown old enough and mature enough and passed that test will they then own the account. That's a great idea. That's like how we train people to drive. You are coaching them through it. It doesn't have to be all off or all on. You can come up with these steps where you and your kids are learning together how to use something well. Okay, great idea for training. Second, set boundaries. So here's the rule that we need to understand. Smartphones are not a right. They are a responsibility. No matter what AT&T commercials tell you, no one has a God-given right to a smartphone. It's a responsibility, and you and your kids need to understand that. You need to be clear with, their, with your kids. A smartphone is a right, and if they don't, or is a responsibility, and if they don't use it responsibly, they'll lose it. 
I actually had an incredibly good idea shared with me last week. There's a family who they give their kids smartphones at an appropriate age, but they're very clear, this phone doesn't belong to you. All the phones in the family belong to the family, and it's the parents who control that. So this isn't your phone. This is a family phone that you are getting to use so long as you keep the rules. I love that idea. Okay, something that you can do to help formalize that sense of responsibility is actually write a contract with your children. Really useful thing to do, and you don't have to start from scratch. This afternoon, go on to Google and search for the phrase family media contract. Family media contract. There's a lot of different examples. Pull those up. It's kind of like a, a moral family version of like the AT&T cell phone contract. So you're going to read through it and it's going to lay out the rules. Here's what's expected. You, you need to keep these rules or you lose the device for a time. Not, not forever, but you lose that app or you lose that device. Here's exactly what we expect and you sign it and your child signs it. You need to formalize that sense of responsibility so your child understands this, this isn't a right. This isn't a present for me. This is an incredibly serious responsibility. It has great power for good or ill. So I need to use it well. So as you are writing this contract and thinking through some of the rules, let me give you two rules. You, you can take or leave it. These are, these are at least my rules I, that I think are really helpful. First rule that I would set in, this, in the cell phone or the media family uh, covenant or contract is no device sleeps in a bedroom. I, I really, really, really don't think that any kid should go to bed with a digital device alone at night in their room with a portal to everything bad in the world. Okay, so it might be in your contract. All devices, and maybe mom and dad need to be included in this too, all devices sleep and lock up in the living room. And go actually get a little table with charging stands, and all the devices sit there. If you're afraid your kid's going to come in in the middle of the night and grab it, buy one with a lock on it. Okay, so, so have that as a boundary you set to help protect your kids at night. Um, a second example, you might really want to strongly consider banning some of the apps that in the news are being used for pornography and bullying above other apps. Like these are the really dangerous ones. So you don't have to agree with me. Maybe your kid already has this. These are apps I would ban. If you have them, be incredibly careful. Now to ban an app, you know you have to go into settings and you have to prohibit loading apps on your smartphone. So learn how to do that. If you don't know how to do that, talk to somebody young, they will. So you got to set up parental controls, turn off the app store. That way you decide what apps are allowed on your child's iPad or iPhone. I want you to incredibly, be incredibly careful with these apps, with Yik Yak, Snapchat, Tinder, Tumblr, Kick, and Ask FM. Those are the apps that are particularly being used for pornography and bullying. Really, really dangerous. I'm sure there's lots more. You're responsible to study them for yourself, but that's just a hint. Check those out. Be really, really careful with them. Third, provide oversight. So here's the big idea. Your child is under your oversight in every way until they move out. Your child is under your oversight in every way, including when they go online. Their online life is under your oversight. And so what that means, and you just need to be completely clear with your child, your child needs to know, you have the right to look at their device at any time. The device is not private from you. No, you're the parent. That's not sticking your nose into their business. That's where your nose belongs as their parent. 
You have the right to see anything on their device at any time, so that means you have all their passwords to every app. They are not allowed to have any secret apps, any vaults, anything hidden from you. Now, some parents will say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't that mean we're not trusting our children? That's the wrong way to look at it. Would you give your 10-year-old a running car or a loaded gun? No. And yet this is absolutely just as dangerous. So it's not about trust. It's about protection and responsibility. You as a parent have the, the responsibility to watch over everything your child is doing online. You need to provide oversight. And parents, I'd particularly encourage you to watch for, for four things that are really common when kids go online. The first we said earlier is addiction. It's hard enough for adults to not become addicted. Think about how hard it is for our kids. They don't have all the resources we do. So watch for signs of addiction that your child just can't put it down. Second, watch for signs of narcissism. That's a, an undue emphasis on vanity or appearance or fame. You need to watch out for that and be careful with that because the internet feeds that. You need to watch out for body image issues. So the prevalence of, of apps like Snapchat and, and Instagram are creating a lot of struggles with body image issues like anorexia or bulimia as people try to control how they look online. Fourth, watch out for any signs of possessiveness. If your child will not hand over the device, if your child tries to hide the device, that is a guaranteed sign that something wrong is happening and you need to look into it quickly. Okay, so watch out for those things for your kids. Now, I want to leave you with some good news because this has been some pretty heavy stuff. The good news is your child actually wants your help, even though he or she may never admit it. Your child desperately wants your help. And here's why. Let, let me read you again Nancy Jo Sales. She was having a conversation with a couple teenage girls. One of them said, Social media is destroying our lives, said the girl at the Grove. So why don't you go off it, Nancy asked. Because then we would have no life, said her friend. Got to understand, your kids are caught in an absolutely vicious catch-22. If they go off social media, they don't exist in the eyes of their friends. And yet they have been on social media long enough to see how it is devastating people. They know better than we do how toxic it can be. And so they, they know it's bad for them, but they can't get off it because then they don't exist. They want somebody to help them, to come alongside of them and lead them in this incredibly dangerous pursuit of following Jesus online. Don't abandon your child to the wolves in this fight. Come alongside them and help them. Even if they say they don't want your help, just take it on faith. No, I'm your parent. I must help you, and I believe you're going to appreciate it. So come alongside them and help them. And, and how do you help them? Well, the biggest thing is to keep the conversation going. Where we started this morning, this is just the beginning. Have these conversations regularly with your kids. Okay, sit down and talk about Do stuff online together and talk about it. Don't beat around the bushes. Talk about the stuff. Use the real words. Get into the nitty-gritty and help your kids understand what's out there and what to do. Okay, so talk to it. You want open communication so that when your child sees a friend crying at her locker because she was bullied online, your child comes and talks to you because the lines of communication are open and you can coach your child and think through how to respond. Okay, so keep the conversation going. All the notes and details uh, for this sermon, they're online already for the other campuses. They'll be online for Creekside on Tuesday, so you're welcome to, to grab those notes and keep looking through this material. 
and applying it. Uh, a few books for you to consider. There's two books that I referenced this morning. The first, Nancy Jo Sales, American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. It is an R-rated book. It is brutal to read. It is devastating. Uh, but if you have teens or tweens, you need to know what's going on out there. It's actually good whether it's girls or boys that you have, but you need to be aware of how horrid the landscape is. So Nancy Jo Sales, brutal book. Nicholas Carr, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. That's more of a research-based study of the the neural changes and the cultural changes happening in the human race because of the internet. Not a lot of solutions, but at least you'll know what's going wrong with you. Fourth, which has more solutions, Andy Crouch's book that just came out, The TechWise Family. It's one family's attempt to set boundaries on social media and the internet so that they can follow Jesus online. Not necessarily the rules for everyone, but one good example of how a family tackled that. All right, I hope you will keep this conversation going. I hope you'll keep talking about it, keep working on it, and talk to your kids about it. Let me pray for God to give us help. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the king of kings, whether offline or online. You know everything that's on the internet. You go with us when we go on the internet. Nothing is hidden from you there, even the anonymous stuff. You see it all. You know it all. We thank you for that, Lord. We pray that you would, that you would gird us up, that you would protect us, that you would strengthen us so that when we go online, we would follow Jesus and please him by all that we say and do. I pray that you would help us as a family to think about the stuff that we do online, how it affects other people, how it affects our witness for Jesus. I pray that we would honor you by what we do online. I pray also, Lord, that you would help us with our kids. I pray that you would help us not to be afraid of what they're going to see online, but to instead to proactively coach them, to train them, to come alongside them and partner with them as they discover this brave new world. We do pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grow our kids as a, as a digital generation growing up with the internet. We pray that they would become even better than us at sharing Jesus online. We pray that they would use all of these tools that the world has given us to glorify your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name and for whose glory we pray. Amen. All right, you guys have a great week.